Hello and welcome to the TransUnion podcast. This episode is coming to you from our TransUnion Future Summit in 2023. My name is Harriet Sloan and I head up the Fraud and ID Consultancy and Analytics team here at TransUnion UK. The panel we're bringing you today was entitled Knowing Your Customer, What's Holding You Back from Greatness? The panel was chaired by Sam Welsh, our Head of Commercial Banking here at TransUnion. And we was joined by a really interesting panel. So Desmond McNamara from Zilch, Darren Kelk from Ascendant Solutions, Stuart Daniels from FGH and Ranil Boteju from Lloyds Banking Group. It's clear that data advancements have the potential to improve how well you know your customer and drive outstanding customer experiences and personalised services. However, with regulatory evolution, including the new consumer duty and intense market competition, the right approach is harder to find, but can definitely hold the key to growth and be a real unique selling point. In this session, we asked industry leaders from different sectors, what more could be done to get to know customers better? It's commonly acknowledged that data advancements have the potential to improve how well you know your customer and by default help drive outstanding customer experiences and personalised services. But with regulatory evolution, including the new consumer duty and intense market competition, the right approach is harder to establish, but does hold the key to growth and can be a real unique selling point. My name is Sam Welch. I lead our banking team here at TransUnion. And the purpose of this session this afternoon is really about how well or not you know your customer base. It's really important at the moment on several fronts, which we'll, we'll get into. Um, we've got an esteemed panel, um, which I'll bring to the stage shortly. But before I do, I'm a bit of audience participation. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Can I ask, uh, for those of you that believe that having a complete and accurate view of your customer base is important to your respective businesses, could you please stand up? It's not a trick question. Good, good. You can all sit down. Thank you. And then taking this to one step further, can I have a show of hands who believe that when you look at your own business through an honest lens, you have that complete and accurate view of your customer base and for brands or companies where you've got multiple brands, you've got a strong and robust single customer view. Can I get an honest show of hands? Okay, so, so not many, right? So, so thank you for your honesty, firstly. Uh, it could have been awkward uh, for the rest of the, the chat, but um, the, the, it is really important to, that we know our customers um, on several fronts, really. So we, we at TransUnion um, spend a lot of time looking at this. There's some, a couple of stats I just want to share with you. So on, on average, across our clients, and we've looked at all of the, um, the data that we have as a CRA, on average, 2% of your client base is a duplicate. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but if you've got a portfolio of, say, 20 million people, that starts to become quite material. Secondly, if you look at um, the primary address of your customers, 8.6% of our clients' customer, end customer data has the wrong primary address. So that's important on several fronts. I say one is, if you're looking to provide a personalized service, how can you do that if you don't actually understand your end customer? On, given the macroeconomic challenges, and we've heard and read everything we've heard in sessions earlier today, 
How can you go after smart growth, which again is something that as a, a CRA, we're helping our customers, uh, clients identify is pockets of smart growth. But if you don't understand your customer, how can you go after those? And then finally, from a, a, the stress um, and cost of living crisis and all of the vulnerable customers that are out there, how can you feed and service those in the right way, linked you know, with a bigger focus on consumer duty that's, and other regulations in other markets? And again, another shock tactic, in the last three months, 2.5 million people have had an income shock of more than 20%. So this is huge, right? And if you think where the world's going in terms of more unemployment is expected, knowing your customer base is absolutely critical. So I just wanted to kind of frame and set, set the context for the session. So um, now if I could invite my uh, esteemed panel. So Renil Bothedu, uh, Chief Data Officer at Lloyds Banking Group. Des McNamara, Chief Risk Officer at Zilch. Darren Kelk, MD at Ascendant Solutions. And Stuart Daniels, Chief Credit Officer at Freeman's Group. Can welcome to the stage, please. First question. So, so Renil, uh, for you, do, would you say you have a single customer view when you look across Lloyd's Banking Group? So I think the first thing to uh, highlight is Lloyd's Banking Group is made up of a number of different brands. You know, we've got um, Scottish Widows, MB&A, um, uh, Halifax, Bank of Scotland, Lloyd's Banking Group, Lex Lease, it's just a few of them. And so, you know, we've basically tried to create a single view of customer. It's not perfect. There are still some, you know, some gaps. So, you know, really linking all of our insurance wealth and pension products with retail, there's a few gaps there. Business and retail, again, some gaps there. But I would say, you know, we recognize that there are some gaps working through those. Mm -hmm. But in the main, we actually have a reasonable view um, we, we know we've got work to do to close out those gaps, but it's definitely not the thing that's holding us back from greatness. But, you know, we absolutely recognize that, um, you know, for our strategy, we want to, I think we're you know, very public about, um, you know, aspirations, the mass affluent stage, mm -hmm. bringing together the investment insurance wealth bits with our retail part. For us to really succeed at that, we, we need this to be better than it is. But at the moment, I wouldn't say it's holding us back. Right, okay. We, we have known gaps, but it's not really holding us back. Okay, cool. Thank you. And, and Stuart, what, what are your thoughts? First thought is, why did I get the cheap mic? <laughs> <laughs> is it because I'm mailed order? <laughs> um, so, similar to a lot of people in the audience, we have a single customer view. Could it be more robust and better? Yes, definitely. Um, we have a particular challenge in the... We, 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 uh, I am representing the mail order sector, but it, yeah. truth be told, it's not been mail order and catalogue for a number of years. It's been digital point-of-sale credit for quite a while now but we do have that catalogue legacy and because of that a lot of legacy brands and the way that way back when acquisition strategy um, was to create a new brand essentially create a new catalogue and st stick a different cover on it and recruit all of the same people again yeah um, so we have quite a legacy of um, lots of different brands lots of the same customer and that's the kind of polar opposite of what we want now we're trying to consolidate those things make it purely digital so it is a challenge. It's very important for us. And requiring quite a lot of tech investment to get there. Certainly. Yeah. And the same, Renil, for you, right? From, Absolutely. Yeah. Which is huge. So bring, it's the legacy systems trying yep. to bring all that together to have that single customer view, which is, which is the problem, right? So um, Des, coming to you, how do you ensure, so as we've heard that from a single customer view, there's variations of whether or not people have that, but how do you then ensure on an ongoing basis that data is kept up to date? So you were kind enough to tell us you were going to 
tell the numbers of uh, of the stats of how accurate people's, but you didn't tell us beforehand what the numbers were. Um, and I suppose one of the key things is I know the numbers for my company. How many of you know the numbers for your company with the CRA? And if you look at the sort of the credit market survey that, that was done, it clearly said that some firms are sending rubbish information into the CRAs. And this, then this needs to be a much higher standard. Our number mm. is 99.3, okay? And you said the average was 8% off or something. 8.6, okay. yeah. So it's, it's in our blood, it's everything we do. We, are, we, we run all the ver various verification checks at the start. We run a whole series of deduplication checks. And where we find errors, we then throw them up and, and deal with them. Somebody was talking this morning about uh, the use of bots. Well, what we know is bots are very good at typing in the right information. Okay? The, the, the average consumer will often get us a, a, a digit wrong or a letter wrong. And so we have to really just turn around and say, well, what checks have you got in place from that? So fuzzy, fuzzy matching logic, I must admit, is the bane of our lives. Um, match rates shouldn't be the objective because matching just says, I found something somewhere that sort of looks a bit, and it needs to be, it, we should set a standard, which is we should be able to get the right data on a consumer. It's not hard to go and get the first name, last name, address, match their details, and, and, but you've got to live it through a whole organization. And so I feel we've got to these numbers, not because uh, we've been onboarding customers for three years, and we still maintain those sorts of levels, but it's got to come from the top down. Yeah. And it's got to be, if you don't know the numbers from your firm, then they're freely available from each of the CRAs. Well, then one in particular. One in particular. <laughs> we got that number from you. Okay, so, um, but I think one should hold ourselves to a higher standard. But, you know, we will continue to do what we do. But so far, it's working very, very well. Great. And, and actually, look, I'm quite keen to get a few different views on, on that one in particular as well. So, again, I might, Renee, I'll come back to you from an ongoing customer data management. Um, what else do you put in place to, to make sure it's as robust as, as possible? Yes, yeah, so I mean, we, we have quite a big focus on um, ensuring that we master our data properly, right? So we've got, as you can imagine, multiple, um, you know, brands, multiple, you know, kind of product lines. And so therefore, it's really important that we actually have a master of our customer data. So we're investing in, you know, kind of re rebuilding that on public cloud. Mm -hmm. And really where we want to get to is to avoid the situation where, you know, a customer's come in, change their account details on a particular sort of product, but that then doesn't get reflected. Yeah. Now, as you can imagine, those rules are quite complex. So sometimes legitimately customers may not want their overall, um, you know, kind of customer account records changed. So we've got to think quite carefully how we lean into that. That is an area of, uh, of focus. Um, we've kind of recently gone through a whole bunch of complaints around how that process works around, you know, accounts versus, uh, you know, kind of customer particularly on the address type details. So it's definitely an area where we're, we're continuously evaluating have we got this right? Mm -hmm. Do we have the right um, rules in place to ensure that either we do update things across or we don't, right? So it's, it's definitely an area of strong focus. Sounds good. And, and Stuart, man, come back to you on how, again, how across your, you've got so many brands, how do you begin to try and make sure that data is, is up to date? I mean, there's the, the kind of data infrastructure is important. So we're doing a lot of investment around how we hold data, how we can access it. But also one of the things that's 
an advantage for us is we have the customer in channel a lot because we're a retailer. We're often interacting with the customer dozens of times a year. Mm -hmm. So it's in the customer's interest to keep their <coughs> details up to date so we can send the goods to the right address, for instance. Um, where we see the particular challenges where we're not interacting with the customer, and particularly in the kind of collections and financial difficulties uh, context where it's really important to know your customer, really important to have the right details, but you don't have that ongoing dialogue with the customer it's often difficult to get that information so that's more of a challenge at this point in time yeah makes sense um so when we caught up uh beforehand the the main question of, of interest and this is where we've probably spent quite a lot of time is around looking after vulnerable customers um it's such a hot topic at the moment so we'll, we'll dive into that now so darren um talk to me about how you use leverage customer data to help identify vulnerable customers and then act on that? We work predominantly in the council tax uh, area, council uh, council space, okay? So most people in here, I guess, unless we've got some foreign visitors, pay your council tax on time, yeah? Good, maybe, some <laughs> of you. Um, you all received your rebate grants, maybe, yeah? We processed 7 million accounts through the rebate grants. We paid out over 1 billion pounds to to people that needed money. This leads me on to some of the stuff without the true validate that we got from TransUnion processing well over a million records, we'd have been, we wouldn't have been able to do it. It would be impossible, okay? Because we believed in putting, uh, put the, giving the customers, the right customers, because we've got fraud, we've got a lot of fraudulent people. I listened to the fraud one earlier on today, really interesting. Um, and how do you combat fraud? Well, it's, it is a battle against, against fraudsters, it really is. So what we've we've done, and we've gone to the next level of, of, of where we're applying for. So imagine you're going to go and, and you're struggling to pay your council tax, okay? And you'll see where I'm coming from here. I think I think I saw Devon come in. I think uh, they put a brilliant paper together, policy and practice, and it was 18 point something, nine billion pounds unclaimed benefits in the UK. So imagine that's got to be realized somewhere across the country. We've gone away and done extensive work with a single council, okay? Because we always work with a single council to start with, okay? So imagine you're a customer and you're struggling to pay, you're struggling to pay your council tax, priority debt, okay? You're struggling to pay this debt and you're struggling to make ends meet. Your family's, you know, you're, you're, you're a family man or a family person, your family's suffering, you're going through lots of hardship, okay? Most people go to the CA, most people go to the councils, okay? What my technical team have built is an online process where a customer can go on with an embedded calculator. So they click on the calculator all the time in the background, the information that, we, that they're putting in, we're checking against varying data sets that we get from TransUnion. Because we want to make sure at the end of the journey, that customer gets paid that, that amount of money that they're entitled to into the right bank account, okay? So while they're going through the journey, it says you could be, you could be eligible for a benefit of X, not only a benefit of X, you might be able to get backdated as well, okay? So complete your uh, consent this, and we will go to your banks, and we will pull your transactional data, okay? We will then work with that transactional data. We will categorize it. We will fill it in. It takes between four and eight minutes to complete the process from end to end. I don't know in the room, probably not own up to it, has anybody actually applied for any benefits? Or do you know anybody that's applied for benefits? It's a very laborious, a very time-consuming where you've got to supply information and quality information of certain bills and things that are going out. Where there's, when you get your open banking, it tells you everything. We will talk to Bud, Maz, I promise, at some point. Okay. <laughs> um, so again, so while that's going off, this is all live, real time. Okay. And at the end of it, 
It says, by the way, we've just now looked at your income and expenditure that's been digitized by us. We can now, we can confirm that you are on the wrong benefit. You've gone from a legacy benefit onto, you need to go onto universal credit. They're varying things that you should, should be applying for. Consent again, and we will help you with that as well. On average, it takes about 11 minutes to complete that journey. What it will do to the, if you like, the, the, the people that we're dealing with, your customers, as well as the council's customers, it will enable them to be able to one, pay off the council tax. The punishments of non-payment of council tax, as we know, are for the fees, the enforcement fees and potential visits. So that family, that person has now got more money in their pocket. They can help themselves. Thus, they'll be able to deal with other creditors and be able to pay their other creditors as well. When you go a little bit further than that, and these are the things that we've been working with TransUnion on, I know we're at TransUnion, but, you know, which is to know your customer. There are so many customers out there uh, I don't know if any single people are on here and you're claiming your single person's discount at 25%. Maybe, maybe not. You might be claiming it and somebody's living with you. That's naughty. It's fraudulent <laughs> before we go any further. But what we're doing is reverse engineering that. So we're now looking at people that we can guarantee they live on their own and they've not claimed their, their single person's discount. And then you look at the pensions and how much money that's, um, that's not claimed through pension credits. There is so much, there's a vast amount of money and the only way we can get to identify that is to be able to get quality data to be able to at least do some push out and reach out to these customers or the councils will do the push out and reach out to the customers. My last bit, the mortgage crisis. We're doing some work on that. We're here next, next week talking to the uh, London Revenues Group. Uh, we've got stats for stats for stats on property transactional data. Um, I saw from one of the things, the VRS, we plumb VRS into all our output. Everything we do on vulnerability, it has the VRS flag plumbed into it because it is a key trigger for councils to take the customer down a different route, okay? Now, what we're looking at, the things is, which is, I think, stress and shock. I think stress is going to be understated. It's going to be shock to some of these people where they're going to come out of a fixed term. And I'd love to the lenders to give us that, <laughs> that date so we could actually work very closely with them and hopefully work with the customers with the data we get from t uh, TU to be able to take them through a, probably not a shock anymore, and we may be downgraded mm. to, a, to stress. Thank you. Yeah, you're doing lots of really good stuff for when you look at what we're, we're trying to do around the information for good from a global perspective, yeah. but you bring that down into how that information is ultimately helping the end customer at a time when they're most vulnerable. So thank you for sharing that. Okay. Des, over to you. So we, is an interesting take I would say on this, which is, I think actually most customers are happy to share their vulnerability with you if you ask. Because um, we certainly see, you know, we have a dedicated chat environment and we can search criteria and we look into, we can then look for keyword searches and optimize and then look at how the customer performed and how they how they scored the, we, we score every single interaction and then look to see whether we've performed better with particular types of vulnerabilities or not. It's about an ethos. You've got an ethos there, which is, I want to make sure this is exactly right and I've understood the customer. If your firm has got that sort of ethos, then I think you can start applying that and raise that standard. And then it's not always saying that you immediately run a completely different process, but most customers just want to tell you, uh, particularly if they've got an, a sudden vulnerability, they want you to know, but they also want you to show you've listened to it and you've sort of adjusted somehow to it. And then you get into the challenges which of what are we going to adjust for now, now that we do know that piece of information. So technology is actually making it much easier for customers to share that as a sudden vulnerability. Longer term vulnerabilities, I think still many customers are worried that you may exclude them from the product if they tell you about it. 
And so it's getting them to, to, to buy into that over a longer period of time. I think the, F, the financial services industry has got a bit of work to do to, to win people over to say, we're not going to use it against you. But we certainly find that customers are in, when they're coming and talking to us, they're very open, they're very willing to share with this vulnerability. But the bar's quite high. They're expecting us to then do something and adjust for it and show that we, we've been a, appropriate in that respect. Mm -hmm. And we score ourselves, Look, we look at just how we deal with vulnerability and we expect and we set ourselves a bar, which is we should perform better with those customers than we do with even average customers. Not just lower, but we should be even better because those are the customers which are really looking for that additional bit of service. Mm. And so do you think there's like an education piece, be that from the lenders or even CRAs or government, whoever, to kind of educate and make sure that it's okay to share that information because ultimately it's going to help them out of their particular situation? I, th I would have thought most consumers are nervous about sharing their vulnerability with a lender. They cross that Rubicon once they get to a point where it's, it's gone into delinquency, where, they've, where they now think, what, gosh, I'm delinquent, but I'm delinquent because I was in hospital last week and such like. That seems to be a bar which they are then very open and willing to share. We're trying to get them to share with us even earlier than that. Um, but I think at that point, you're really trying to, you should hold yourself to a standard, which is, Am I doing better with those customers? What is the unique uh, customer journey that I have when the customer shares that piece of information? And we score all of our customer journeys. We then rank them based on vulnerability. And where we're worse on vulnerability, we're, we're particularly challenging ourselves saying, what are we doing wrong? Because yeah. in theory, this customer is sharing a lot more information with us. So I think it's an ethos within the firm. I think you talked earlier about consumer duty. I think mm. consumer duty has put it as a legal requirement upon all of us to do that. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I think the whole industry is, is a work in progress. Yeah, we might touch on that depending on time. But Stuart, how do you look at vulnerable customers? I'm sure everybody else has had been consumed by consumer duty. Um, and I, I read the, the legislation, the rules when they came out, and I was actually got to know, where are the rules? <laughs> um, it was very principle-based, but um, I think the word vulnerability or vulnerable is mentioned 100 times or more in the consumer duty. Um, so it's clear where the, the regulator's mind is. Um, it's key for us. Again, we, we want to achieve, if not the same, but better outcomes for customers that are vulnerable. The challenge is where you don't have the interaction with the customer, where you don't have the customer in channel. So the way we're approaching it is looking for behavioral indicators. Mm. So there are lots of signal and lots of tell in the way that customers interact with us in the retail journey, in the ongoing financial services journey that indicate that maybe they're not understanding the way that uh, they should be interacting. Their payment profile is sporadic. Um, I think in one of the sessions earlier, part payment is often more of a yeah. sign of financial distress and vulnerability yeah. than a full payment or yeah. a single full payment. So it's kind of using the data we've got. Being a retailer, we have lots of information and using that to kind of build behavioral profiles of customers to identify we need to be doing more. Yeah, Our, our standard of care needs to be higher on these customers. Makes sense. And Renil, from a banking perspective... We use a lot of behavioral signals. So again, there, there are a lot of tells in the data. So it's things like um, transaction profiles. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of like triggers. Uh, we've built various vulnerability models. Um, we also do things like, um, you know, we've got some, um, you know, go through the actual voice transcripts and actually build models based on customers self-identifying. So we use a, a range of, right. of different either modeling or trigger-based techniques to, to try and categorize customers. One of the one of the challenges, or not challenges, one of the things that we had to overcome though was make sure that we had the right ethical framework in place. So I was very keen that we embark on this work 
once really clear that we would only use it in the best interest of the customer. So definitely, like you know, I think as you know, as was said earlier, people generally typically don't want to share vulnerability with a lender. They feel it might prejudice future yeah. lending decisions. We're very keen that that was, you know, that would be our position as well. So effectively, it's got some really tight criteria in place about how we can use these insights and these model scores and triggers. So that that's very much part of it. Um, the other part, though, is um, so as we started doing this work, realized identifying who's vulnerable is is quite straightforward, but also just as straightforward is trying to predict who is going to get into difficulties well ahead of time. So if you think about things like collections journeys, mm-hmm. all that effort to basically, you know, it's effectively like the ambulance at the foot of the cliff. It's almost too late. Yeah. And using the same techniques, you know, that we can to identify whether someone's vulnerable or about it's, you know, let, let's take a much more forward looking view of trying to predict that six months in advance. So now with that, the challenge though is what would we do with that? How would we yeah. use that? You know, so again, we're very cautious about, because obviously these are predictions. We, we don't know whether it's true or not. So it's, it's more in the context of, you know, if we predict someone has, is likely to get into difficulties, let's maybe surface up some financial, you know, uh, literacy type stuff and try yeah. and head that off. But that, that's kind of where, where I see the opportunity with the behavioral signals is being a lot more predictive and trying to um, basically um, sort of pr- uh, prevent rather than cure. So taking preventative measures, I think, is where we need to focus and moving the whole debt collection collections process much, much further upstream to avoid people getting to difficulties in the first place. That would be a, a much better ROI for us, but also better outcomes for the customer as well. Yeah, I think um, another kind of shameless plug for TU services uh, with with Lloyd's, uh, they've gone out to market with the Credit View, uh, Know Your Credit Score, um, which has been really successful. Uh, and actually, that's a, a really good tool to be able to educate and prompt and work with the customers on that journey as opposed to them getting a letter through the post that comes in cold. That that way of it, interacting um, is really helpful and I know it helps a lot. So. Very good, thank you. Going back to the hyper-personalized or even just personalized service um, that other industries have aspired to, um, you could look at the likes of kind of Netflix, potentially Amazon, et cetera, of um, how do they, how do they work, how do they know their customers as well, better than potentially the customer knows their needs. Um, when you look at your respective industries, do you see that you could ever harness the power of data both within your organization and beyond to actually get to that position? I think with banking, we're uniquely placed to do that. So uh, bank I work at, Lloyds Bank, our our purpose is helping Britain prosper. Mm -hmm. And so we are absolutely not in the business of trying to monetize our customers' data. We're not not trying to sell it. We're not doing like, you know, what, um, you know, Google does and try and sell advertising off the back of it. Effectively, the data that we have, we want to use it for the benefit of our customers. And if you think about the richness of data that a bank has, so your entire transaction profile, so the number of signals you'd get from someone's transaction behaviors, their payments behaviors, you know, their, um, you know, um, all of the insight you'd get from things like a financial needs analysis. The like, it, it is incredibly rich, and uh, we're uniquely placed to use it at a very personalized level, right? So if you look at all of the, um, you know, the big tech. They go to extreme lengths to basically, um, uh, you know, mask the data, right? So they don't want to have one-to-one. It's all mm. persona-based. We can actually use data down to an individual level because we're using it for their for their best interest. So 
I, I really feel it's it's a kind of a, an area that most banks haven't given enough focus. I mean, I think you know the tech's still getting there in terms of setting up the right transaction classification and personalization systems. Mm-hmm. But basically, banks are uniquely placed to use that data for you know helping people actually achieve their goals. So you think about um, uh, you know we've all got financial goals, and you know if if someone were to announce you know what I'd like to save uh, you know. Twenty thousand pounds for my wedding in three years. A bank could actually help you get that. They could actually not, mm-hmm. and obviously you'd have to opt in. But th- those are the sorts of you know interventions that banks could make in the interests of their customers using data. So that's kind of what um, kind of inspires me about you know banking. Yeah. It's it's that opportunity which is still somewhat ahead of us. No one seems to be doing so it. That's, that's going to be my next question. No one's really no one's really doing it. No one's really so no one's taking that kind of. And everyone's doing one-off nudges rather than, mm. you know what, let's, between now and the next three years, let's help you save 20,000 quid. Here's what you need to do on a daily basis. Here's the little, you know, behavioral science interventions we're going to make to change your behaviors in a subtle way. Uh, and obviously you can, so no one's really doing that anywhere in the mm. world, but that, that's kind of where now, you know, we're all starting to have the, the right data and tech stacks to do that. Yeah, really interesting. And going along, Stuart? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Amazon in terms of hyper personalization. I don't know about everybody else. I don't think they're brilliant on personalization. Yeah. I think what they're fantastic at is taking friction out of the journey. It's so easy to buy, hmm. too easy sometimes. Um, and that's the tension we have being a, a, a digital retailer and also a financial services business. Um, marketing team, friction's a swear word. We want to dial that down in the customer journey, whereas our credit risk team want to know your inside leg measurement when you're. Um, <laughs> when you're putting an application through. So I think personalization for our sector will be the right amount of friction. Mm-hmm. So dialing up the friction where there's a signal in the data, whether it's from the bureau or internal data, that customer might have more challenges around affordability. Um, and dialing down the friction where we know that the customer doesn't need that amount of that amount of questioning going through the acquisition journey. Uh, and again, yeah. I don't think anyone's doing it brilliantly at this moment in time. So there's still an opportunity for retail as well. Yep. And there's finally. So... I work for a, a fintech company that's been in existence for operating for three years and is there to disrupt the way of the current status quo. So you won't be surprised that I would disagree <laughs> with effectively uh, uh, Rana's point. Because um, I've worked on the, on the uh, I've been the chief officer for the largest unsecured lender in the UK. Um, our, we, I think there is a radical future coming where financial services firms have to work far harder for their money. I don't think you can lend someone a thousand pounds and then just revolve into 500 pounds worth of debt and earn 35% on that for the next four years. Um, I think the firms that, you know, why does buy now pay later? Has, why has it taken off? Because it's, it's, a, it's a combination of, it's a much more simplified product which people can understand. We're not living off, you know, we're not living off recurring interest. We, we have to provide a service you know, next week, the week after, the week after, otherwise we don't have any volume. And so because of that, the bar for success is far higher and that's why we're aiming for it. And I think the challenge for incumbent banks is, you know, banks are, uh, provide a very important role in society, okay? I'm not dismissing that, you know, they are safe stores of d- deposit products and they, for very long-term lending, um, you need people who have large amounts of retail balances, okay? That, that they're incredibly valuable for society from that point of view. But uh, we would say the idea that people are, we're not finding new ways 
to monetize and create value for consumers um, and that customers can't start to earn money from the ads that they see okay and do it in a completely different way so not, only, not that it's google making money from the ad but actually it's the consumer making money from the ad we think there's a radical future coming and one of the reasons why bnpl has grown so much is because customers don't see that um, they're being locked into some long-term debt but they see value in every single transaction and so uh, start from the point i would i'm naturally going to be biased and, dead and and opposite because I've voted with my feet and I've left mainstream yeah. banking because I think there's a new way of doing it. Um, the fact that everyone is so scared about BNPL ending and the growth of those markets would suggest there is a new future. Uh, the, it, the question is how does everyone react and can we, can, can we keep offering even better and better products going forward? I hope you agree. That was a really interesting and dynamic conversation from industry leaders across multiple industries exploring this topic of, of knowing your customer. If there's anything on the discussion that resonated with you or that you'd like to learn more about, please do reach out to us. Relevant details can be found in the bio for this episode. Thank you for listening to the TransUnion podcast. Please look out for the next episode. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Music